We've been spending a lot of time in looking at our culture and trying to understand what is going on. And so we have gone through this series called Understanding the Times. Today, maybe the high point of all of that, and I know at both campuses, we have woven this through. Today, we need to make sure our sights are firmly fixed on the God we are here to worship this morning. And so we will do that this morning. That is my goal. Some sermons are kind of descriptions in terms of let's understand something, like like what is this and how do we understand it? And some sermons are how to do something. This one has the goal of being a who is someone. Who is this God that we worship? We have attempted through the series to demolish those ideas that raise themselves up and compete with who God is, who Jesus is, and the things he calls good. Today, our goal is to focus firmly, as Paul will write to the Ephesians, that we would understand who he is. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, as he's writing to this, to this church and probably a few churches that would circulate this letter, he writes to them and he says, my desire for you, and because this is the inspired word of our living God, I think this is God's desire for us, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him. Because we have knowledge of him, that extends to everything, and we've been working on that over the last couple months, but today our focus is on him. Let me pray here at the beginning. Father, that is our desire. As we continue through this service to look at your word, open the eyes of our hearts. Maybe more than ever, but will you open them that we would see you? that we would see you more clearly and move in our affections, that our response would be right. We love you, Father. Thank you for your loving kindness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. There are three passages I want to look at this morning, and so if you have an old-fashioned Bible Bible rather than a phone, um, open up to these three places and you can put your bookmarks in there or your fingers there. We're going to start in Job chapter 38 and then we're going to move on to Isaiah chapter 40 and then Psalm 139 and I'll revisit each of those. So if you missed one of those, just join us in Job chapter 38. It seems fitting that we go to a place where God is going to make very clear who he is If you're at all familiar with the book of Job, you know that Job has experienced incredible hardship, sadness, loss, family has died, his livelihood has been taken away, destroyed and stolen. Even his own health seems to be teetering uh, between life and death, though He maybe at times wish it would move towards death because of the pain he seems to be in and experiencing. And his three friends come along and they advise him on why this all is happening. And so for chapter after chapter after chapter, and in Job's experience, day after day after day, he experienced the wisdom or maybe lack of from his friends and Job's interaction with them 
We come to the end where God enters into the discussion and confronts Job in particular. Starting in verse number four of chapter 38. And I'm going to read a good bit of this chapter because I think if you're like me, sometimes just the quantity of hearing what God has to say here is, is helpful. Where were you? He's talking to Job. Feel free to personalize it here if you'd like. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. Let me pause right there. God is confronting Job. And most of Job is kind of like this theological, philosophical discussion of why bad things happen. And now God comes in, and it is interesting to note, this is where God needs to take Job. Just a reminder of who's in charge and what he's in charge of, what God can do and what we, and Job here, here can't do. He takes them throughout creation. Job, was it, is it you that, that made the sun come up today? Job, is, is it you who, who knows the boundaries of the waters or who even began all of this? That you put this little planet in the midst of space and somehow it continues on its orbit without moving from it? Is that you, Job? Job, do you know how to handle death? Are you in charge of death? Job, Job, can you go to the city gates, the entrance of death, and can you tell it when to let people in, when to let people out? Job, can you do these things? These are words that are helpful for me to revisit periodically. If you are like me, they tend to put us in our place. Well, God continues. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. There is a little sarcasm in the Bible. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, 
or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on, on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Now he's talking constellations. Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Well, I don't know about you, but there's a whole bunch of rhetorical questions in there that the answer is rightly no, 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 no. Job could do none of those things. God is not done, as you know, if you read the book at all recently, you know he's got a few more chapters. Like the teacher that instructs the students, so God here believes repetition is going to be helpful. But it's sort of like coming to us and saying, hey, why don't you guys go up north and you tell the forest fires, stop right here. I don't know about you, that's not a ministry I'm going to sign up for. For us to say, let's bring rain and put these fires out. Let's bring an end to this. That will absolutely happen when God speaks. But it is him who controls all of these things. One of the important things I want to put in front of us today, in light of what we've been through, in light of the election coming up, whether it's a day or a process, whatever happens before it, what happens during it, what happens after it, I think you are probably here because you came to worship the sovereign and holy and all-powerful, almighty, living God who looks on this creation and simply by a word can command things to happen. Powers way beyond our control. We are reminded by the book of Job, we are but creatures. Now we're here today because we are given names much better than creature. But the book of Job reminds us we are God's creatures. He is the creator. Move with me to Isaiah chapter 40, and we will, like the scriptures do, just reinforce this idea a little bit. If you know anything about Isaiah 40, you know Isaiah the prophet is speaking the words of God to the Jews who have been defeated, who have experienced 
the great might and power of other empires who have come through and defeated them. And yet, starting in chapter 40, God has these words through his prophet Isaiah saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And part of the comfort for a people who have been defeated by an opposing army and are feeling like this small nation that Israel so often was, apart really from the time of King David, they, they really lacked much, much power and might and size, certainly of their own. But here God says, let me comfort you. And one of the ways he does that is to remind them that he is their God, that he is alive, he is awake, he is a well, he is well, he is active and all of the rest of creation is small in light of him. Jump to verse 21, and let's just read a couple verses. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 through 23. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who sketches, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God here, again, Isaiah seems to like this repetition. He starts with questions, have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? I get the idea of a teacher. It's the end of the school year, getting ready for final exams, and she's looking at her class, and she says, do you remember what I said on day one? And you remember that I repeated that thing on day two? And you remember how I needed to tell you to make sure you knew, and so I told you again on day three? And it was of utmost importance. And so I reminded you yet again on day four. And again, the teacher putting in front, and Isaiah putting in front of the people of Israel and the scriptures putting it in front of us. Brothers and sisters, let's make sure we know. Because we have heard, and we need it repeated to us, maybe because of the culture around us in which we live, maybe it's just part of human nature that tends to lift us up and kind of bring God down, but we know it, we've heard it. There is a mighty God, and he sits above the circle of the earth, and all the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. There's a compliment for you this morning, fellow grasshopper. Have you ever been out, if you like to hike or jog or, or run, you know, run trails or, or walk on trails, you know that in the late summer around here, the grasshoppers come out. And as I, I like to run trails, and as you're jogging along, or even if you're walking, you sort of stir them up and they come across your path. Now, I'm not that big of a guy, but I have yet to meet a grasshopper that has sent me off my way. There is yet to be a grasshopper that has sent God off his plan. We serve an almighty God. Just before this, a little bit more, uh, further up in chapter 40, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. The nations, the nations in their time, they would be thinking about the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. It would move on to the Persians, the Greeks, 
the Romans. It would move on from there to many other nations, to our day, the English, the Americans, to China, Japan, Mexico, Canada, you name them, we are all a drop in a bucket, dust on the scales. God is the sovereign God. Sovereignty means supreme power and authority. God is the sovereign God. He is the supreme, the highest. There is no one to compete with him. And that is the beautiful message of Scripture. That is the message the Jews needed. Have you not heard? Did you not hear it? Was it not taught you from the beginning? For all of us, the God we serve is the God who has no competition. We see it in Genesis 1. There is no one he has to defeat. He gets up. He desires, our triune God desires to make a universe that includes us for the glory of King Jesus. Our relational triune God is sovereign. He is the highest king. And so we see in Scripture, he is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. Move with me now to Psalm 139. Because we, if, if we stop there, we, we could potentially run the risk of making a mistake that some theologians and some philosophers have made. The moment we say that God is supreme, that he has all power and authority, that he is the sovereign king over all creation, is we can move and begin to say, well, well if God has all this power, what does my life matter? And we're going to look at Psalm 139, which speaks to God having all knowledge. Even God having knowledge of something that has not yet happened. We're going to read about David speaking, and before words are even on his lips, God knows them. God knows past, present, future. And so some have mistakenly said, well, the world is just sort of fatalistic. We just, you just do whatever, you know, but, but it doesn't really matter because God knows the future and you can't really change it. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible knows the future. The God of the Bible is in charge and his plans will not be changed. But there is a message that comes through in Psalm 139 that takes this amazing, glorious, all-powerful God and we see that in his character, he desires to relate to us, to invite us into his kingly rule. King David, the great king of Israel, the high point of that history, the warrior and the poet, had this to say, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 139. Notice his description of the intimate knowledge of the sovereign God. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind 
and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David rejoices not only at the sovereign God, not only at the all-powerful, almighty God, but the God who is so present and knows us intimately. He goes on and he talks about this ever-present God, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. God is the God who is all-powerful. He is the supreme authority. He has all the power. He, he, there is no power greater than him, and there is a knowledge of God. He knows all things, If we went back to Isaiah, we see that this is the God who called out King Cyrus of Persia, who you can read about in the history books. God calls him out hundreds of years before he is seated on the throne. God knows what is to come. His plan won't be thwarted, and yet King David can rejoice that this God is good, that this God is an intimate God who knows his people and who loves them. He is present everywhere, and he knows us intimately. Let me just say one thing about this ever-present God. That's a true, that is true for all people. Paul will tell the Athenians as he's proclaiming to them, this God that you do not know, let me tell you about him. He's creator, he's sustainer, he made people, he spread out people, he does all, he governs all of this, and he is never far from you. We need to heed the words sometimes of Solomon that the the beginning of wisdom is a fear of God. For some, this ever-present God is a fearful thing, and it ought to be, because God misses nothing. He sees all, he hears all, he knows all about our lives. And yet, for those of you who understand his mercy, have repented of your sins, and have found forgiveness in Jesus Christ, then like David, his presence, he's before you, he's behind you, and his hand being upon you is a comfort for you. God is powerful. He knows all things. He is present everywhere. He is sovereign and supreme over his creation, and David finds great comfort in this. He is a God of power and might, and he is a God who is unfolding his plan for this creation. There are two key points in his unfolding of this plan. One has already happened, and one is yet to happen. The one that has already happened is the first coming of his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see the one who can command the waves to stop, and they listen. 
who can command sickness to leave, and it does. Who can command death to loosen its grip, and it does. And who can command the demons to leave, and they do. In Jesus, we see God, as Paul writes, as a writer of Hebrew writes, as John writes, we see in Jesus the very nature of this triune, ruling, mighty God. We see in Jesus, too, the hope of God's second high point and what will be the higher point, what Jesus foretold and foreshadowed and showed the might and power and the purpose of God, the plan of God at the beginning in his incarnation, we see in the culmination when Jesus comes back to wrap up this age, this age in which there is sin, in which there is sickness, in which there is death, in which there is evil. We look to Jesus because he is the one who shows us what this almighty, all-powerful God is like, at least in part. We see part of it now. We will see more of it when Jesus comes back again. And he is our hope. I want to intersperse something right here because there are, there are a number of churches, there are some parachurch ministries that are encouraging us to remember the persecuted church. Now we recognize, we, we went through this whole sermon series preaching on the sovereignty of God today because there is uncertainty in our culture now. But there is not the persecution that some of our brothers and sisters, some of the other sons and daughters of Jesus, of, of God, are experiencing. It has been said uh, in, in one of the books I was reading about the persecution in China that in America, pastors go to seminary for three years or eight if you're a real genius like me. In America, you go to seminary for three years. In China, you go to prison for three years. If you want to be a leader of the church in China, you're going to go to prison. Can you grow the church in prison? That's the test of a pastor, at least in some parts of China. Can God, has God grown his church even in prisons? Absolutely. As we move through this next week, we put our hope and comfort on a sovereign and holy God who is working out a plan in all creation. As our brothers and sisters in the communist parts of Asia, in the heavily Muslim parts of the Middle East and North Africa, as they wake up every day a follower of King Jesus, we join them in putting our trust in God, no matter what comes. Not because we're fatalistic, not because we just hold up our hands. We act, and many of us have. That's what we've been trying to do as elders and as pastors. We've been trying to teach on particular issues so that we understand them and we know how we ought to respond in our thinking and in our actions. But there are some that know turmoil and uncertainty and persecution way better than us. And honestly, our King Jesus not only because he is God, but because he was also man, knows this. 
Our God is sovereign. Our God is powerful, and he is working out a plan. And this is a God who appoints kings, governors, presidents, judges. The reason I feel no problem expanding this, even down to low levels, let's take mayors, let's, let's bring it down to government appointed, maybe any uh, appointed or elected position, is in part because of what Jesus said. You remember when he was on trial and he looked at Pilate? Now, Pilate in that scene looked like the human authority, the ultimate human authority. He was the Roman leader. And you remember what he said to him? Pilate, you would have no power except that it's given to you by my father. Pilate was a governor of a very small, in the human speaking, human world, a very small, very insignificant place. I was thinking this morning, I, I don't know, maybe it's like being the mayor of Walsenburg or something. Like, we, we, we kind of know about Walsenburg, but can you imagine? I'm sorry, if the mayor of Walsenburg is here or ever watches, is there, I, apologize, I don't even know if there is a mayor of Walsenburg, Colorado. It would be the sort of thing that you would say, I'm the mayor of Walsenburg, Colorado, and you probably would not even get any follow-up questions. Walsenburg, great. Colorado, yeah, I've been to Colorado, and, and then it sort of moves on from there. Pilate, you're the governor of Judea. Um, great. Uh, where is that? Does that even exist? Jesus tells him, you, Pilate, would not have any power unless it's given to you by my Father. Brothers and sisters, the God that we worship, the God we sang about, the God who cares about your salvation and mine and the salvation of our neighbors and those we get to share the gospel with is a God who cares, who governs. He cares about government. He cares about politics. He cares about economics. He cares about all these things, and we should too. And whatever happens on Tuesday at national levels, at state levels, at local levels, we can know that what Paul says in Romans, what Peter says in his first letter, what Daniel prophesied back in that Old Testament book, what we saw when God said, Pharaoh, I put you here to show my power. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, Paul writes, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I thank God we live in a country where we get to participate. We vote. We tell people how we're going to vote, why we're going to vote, if anybody stops long enough to listen to you in, in that or me in that. We post it online. We hope somebody will see it. We live in a certain country that, that, that we get to participate, but that doesn't change the fact of what we're told all throughout scriptures, that we live in a place where there is no authority except from. And it's not the popular vote. It's not just from the electoral college. It's not who the Senate approves. We know that through these human means, God is at work. 
What do we do? The sovereign God has a plan. We do what we can do. Today I have two responses for us, especially as we head into this week of our election. First, we trust God. We trust him with our salvation and we trust him with his world. I don't have any, I'm not, I don't have any privied knowledge from God on the future, where things are going to go. I read and hear the same polls that you do, but we know this. There is no little grasshopper who will thwart the plans of God. And there is no grasshopper who will thwart your plans to obey God. Anything you can do today, you can do on Tuesday. Whether somebody tells you it's right or wrong, I'm not trying to be catastrophic here or something like that. I don't think things are going to change that quickly. But we need some perspective. Do you trust God? Two barometer checks in our heart and in our soul, our fear and worry. I think of the little cartoons where some little cartoon character gets all afraid and kind of like an ostrich like sticks its head in the ground and its butt is still sticking up high and we all look at that and we're like, we can still see you. You're afraid. You think you're hiding from this. Your head's in the ground. And we laugh and that's kind of the point. But it also makes fun of fear, doesn't it? Fear paralyzes. Kind of makes us stop moving. We don't know to move forward. We don't know to move back. We, we, that moment of fear paralyzes. The goal is not to live in a world without fear. We don't have any control over the world. So in place of fear, we seek to move forward in courage and bravery and trust and love and obedience and thoughtfulness. If you see worry and you see fear, you take it to the God who controls the heavens, who speaks and the weather responds, the one who tells death, you have no more power, you have no more sting, you are conquered. Jesus walked out of your grip, and so will all of my children. He's the one who hems you in. He's right before you. He's right behind you. His hand is upon you. He is near to you, and he says, talk to me. Talk to me. I'm the king of kings. I put him there. I put her there. Talk to me. We've had some of the how-to, what-to sermons. The purpose here is not to be fatalistic. The purpose is to say, let's trust the sovereign God. The other thing, and I've already alluded to it, is let's pray to the living God. How's your conversation life with your father? Is it intimate? Is it regular? Is it sporadic? Those three words would probably describe mine at different points in my conversations with God. 
But we need to heed these words. Remember what, what Paul wrote to Timothy as he's instructing him to instruct other church leaders to instruct the church. He says, first of all, first of all, then I urge, and listen to the four words he gives to describe different types of prayers to offer. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, and he narrows it down just a bit here, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Brothers and sisters, let's take our concerns, our fear, our worry, our hope, our joy. Let's focus on what God has for us. We live in a very secular culture, which means life without God. That's generally, briefly, what secular means. And so it would make sense that many people think our political authorities are the greatest power there is. You and I know very different. We came here to worship the king of all kings. We came here to worship the one who will appoint someone, I think, someone to be our president sometime soon. We came to worship him. Pray to him. Trust him. Take any worry or concern to him. Take your joy and gratitude to him. He's all-powerful. He has a plan and it is working out. Let me close with these two ideas, and then, Bob, I did remember. I'm going to let you pray for us. The things God reveals to us, let's know them and trust that about him. And the things he commands us to do, let's do them. Let's be good servants of the living God.